take my words, speak through them, take our minds and think through, think through them, take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you missed the initial announcement, just a quick update. Uh, there was a problem in the electrical wiring for convergence. Our building, a little critter, ate through some wires, which means there are no, there's no electricity in this building. Obviously no heat. I think we'll be fine. We are moving our children's ministry across the street, so all young children will have a, can be cared for across the street, and a few changes to our education formation, which we'll get to in announcement. We are in a sermon series on the creed. The creeds are a short summary of the Christian faith. We say them every Sunday, so rather than explore a particular passage of Scripture, we're looking at one phrase from the creed. This week is All Saints Sunday. If you notice we have a different color, white rather than green. That means it's a significant day in the life of the church. All Saints Day is a day we remember those who have trusted in Christ but have gone on to be with Him. All Saints Day. So I thought it appropriate on All Saints Day that we consider the nature of the church. So we're jumping, a for jumping forward in the creeds to consider the phrase, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is the creedal description of the church. I've been on one wine tasting, only one. My brother lives out in California, and uh, some years ago, out in Sonoma, went to a very fancy vineyard, and the, the uh, vintner said, gave me a small glass of wine, I tried it, and he said, what did you think? And I said, it tasted like red wine. <laughs> oh, you poor Philistine, he said. And said, try it again, take your time, and look, not look, but, but try to identify the different notes. That's what the song, the vintner said, notes. The earthiness, the oakiness, the etc. the different notes. And lo and behold, because the vintner identified, told me what I should look for, I was able to identify those notes in the wine. I think that's how we should think about the creeds. The creedal description of the church describe characteristics of the church. Different notes. They're there, they have always been there, but most of us have not appreciated them. So we're going to, we're going to ask the creeds to function as our vendor to help us identify what is true about the church, what is true has always been there, and so that we can better appreciate it. One holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The first note of the church is its integrity. The church is one. Now, on what basis can we say the church is one? There are over 2.5 billion Christians in the world worshiping today. Those Christians exist in every nation, every ethnicity, and, and uh, worship in thousands of, tens of thousands of different denominations. How can we say the church is one? We need not look outside the doors of the church. Even when this small church present here this morning are over six different ethnicities, every age from 95 to five weeks, various different backgrounds. On what basis can we claim that this is one church? Are we one because we just happen to be under the same building at the same time? Is our oneness simply a function of geography? No. Our oneness is not based upon ethnicity, nationality, language, or the fact that we all happen to like the same songs. 
The church is composed of people from every different place, every nation, every, every age and class who are united in that it's individual and wildly different members trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is the unity that unifies the church. Last week, we thought about the creedal statement that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus died a sinner's death. Yet he had no sins of his own for which he died. He died for the sins of others, for you and me. To save us and to reconcile us to God. And when a person, regardless of class, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of age, receives what Christ did by faith inwardly, sealed by baptism outwardly, a new and brand new relationship is established between that person and God through Christ. They are reconciled. And secondarily, when that same person receives what Christ did, a new relation is formed, not only vertically, but horizontally. A new relationship is created between that person and all other people who have trusted in Christ. The proper order of relationships is first the believer to God through Christ, and then, and then the believer to other believers. That may sound obvious, it may sound simple, but that has an important implication. The implication is this, the church is a byproduct. It's an important byproduct, but it is a byproduct. Jesus does not save the church. Jesus does not save institutions. Jesus saves people. And saved people constitute the church. You are likely aware that several years ago, this church went through a painful separation between another larger church. I seldom mention this. I think this is the only time I have mentioned this. A group of us stepped away because of what we perceived to be heresy. What is heresy? False beliefs, misguided beliefs about Jesus Christ. And that produced a schism. And what is a schism? It is a separation within the body of Christ. It is painful. It has been likened to a divorce. And then Appropriately, appropriately so. And because schism is painful, many advocated against it. One prominent leader said, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, choose heresy every time. Because heresy, schism, rends the body of Christ. Heresy, or schism, splits the church in two. Now his argument was passionate, but his logic was flawed. While it is true that schism divides the unified church, heresy erodes and eventually destroys the very source of unity that keeps the church together. The church is not one in that we all like each other. The church is not one in that we're all in the same space. The church is not one because we're all the same class, the same ethnic. No, the church is one only in that Jesus Christ is the one Lord of its many different and diffuse members. The integrity of the church is one. 
We move from the integrity of the church to the foundation of the church. It is apostolic. Now, despite that well-known song, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. You know that song? That's actually wrong. Would you believe it? All these years, we've been singing a lie. Not entirely, not entirely a lie, but biblically speaking, Jesus is the cornerstone, and the apostles, they are the foundation. And you can look to Ephesians chapter 2 to describe this building language. The foundation of the church is the apostles. Now, who are the apostles? I'm glad you asked. The apostles are a group of early church leaders all, who all had one very common, or one very important common experience. And that is they all witnessed the resurrection of Christ. As a matter of fact, when the early church was reconstituting its leadership in Acts chapter 1, the only prerequisite that the next apostle had was that they bear witness. They were able to testify to the reality that Christ rose from the grave, the very thing we read about in our gospel lesson. What the apostles witnessed, they proclaimed. And their proclamation forms the foundation of the church. Makes sense? Now, you may have heard it said, you may have even thought it yourself, that the Jesus I believe in would never do or, or say something that doesn't seem very Jesus-like to us. My God would never, my Jesus would never fill in the blank. I'm going to say it gently, but our, our opinions about what Jesus may have said or has done is largely irrelevant. We are not one democratic church. As if we're to say, well, what do you think about Jesus? And what do you think about Jesus? And let's kind of mix it and mash it into the middle. No, we are an apostolic church. Our role is not to form Jesus into who we think he should be by our collective opinions. Our role is to conform to the witnesses of those who saw him rise, namely the apostles. They saw, they spoke. We hear, we believe. That is what we mean when we say that the church is apostolic. Just as the integrity or the unity of the church depends on individual, the individual's faith in Christ, so also the integrity of the proclamation of Christ depends on the witness and the preaching of the apostles. The first two characteristics that emphasize the unity of the church and its uniformity of belief. The next characteristic of the church opens the limitless diversity of the church. The church is Catholic or universal, which means the church cannot be pinned down to one place, even one time, to one denomination, to one style of worship, to one nationality. One nationality. The one church includes all people in all places, in all times, who have trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Period. Where you find that, you find the church. 
And one of the great highlights of our overseas mission trip, which we will go on in early June, is to join with others who are profoundly different from you and me in almost every way imaginable. Who worship God in ways that are completely foreign to the ways I worship. But nonetheless, they worship the same God. It is so encouraging to see just a taste of the universality, the limitless universality of the church. Today is All Saints Day, and so it is especially appropriate to remember that the universal church includes not just those in different geography, but the universal church includes both the living and the dead. Those saints who have gone before, who have made the good confession. I have noticed and have experienced myself that the bereaved often find worship to be very tender. It's not uncommon for someone who is lost to find it very difficult to make it through worship without a dry eye, and I wonder why that is. I have an hypothesis. The bereaved find the worship to be tender because worship brings the bereaved close to the departed. Let me explain what I mean. In the book of Revelation, the fifth chapter, we're given a glimpse into the worship of heaven. And the participants of the worship of heaven number in the thousands of thousands and, and include every creature on the earth and every creature under the earth, the living and the dead, who cry out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, glory, honor, and blessing. As the service of worship moves into communion, we will reference this reality and we will say we join our voices with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven, which includes all the faithfully departed, all the saints who have gone before, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. And perhaps the bereaved find worship tender because for a passing moment, the bereaved are doing what the departed are doing. The bereaved sing for a moment and half-heartedly what the departed sing fully. The bereaved experience in part what the departed experience fully. And maybe the nearness of the departed causes worship to be tender for the bereaved. The universal church, it crosses all lines of nationality, age, income, geography, even the line between life and death. The final characteristic of the church, it is holy. Just note that this characteristic is not aspirational. The creeds don't say, we wish the church, we hope the church, we believe the church will one day be the church. The creeds say the church is holy. On what basis can we claim that the church is holy? Should members of the church be holy? Yes. Should leaders of the church be holy? Absolutely. But are members of the church and leaders of the church holier 
Can we base our holiness on our purity? I just think that's a very hard argument to make. So again, on what basis can we claim that the church is holy? Well, a little etymology will help us out. The word church comes from the Greek word kyriake, pronounced kirke in German. Kyriake, not karaoke. Kyriake means that which belongs to the Lord. The church is holy because it belongs to the Lord. Look briefly at the passage from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. The author prays that we may have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, so that we may know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance is in question? God's. God's inheritance. What is the substance of God's inheritance? Would you believe you and me? His saints? That God should set such a high value on us seems incredible, but that's exactly what this passage communicates, that men and women who have called upon Christ are His. We have been claimed by Him. We are His possession, His inheritance. The author C.F. Lewis writes this, One day we will stand before God, and the promise of glory almost impossible to believe and only possible by the work of Christ is that some of us shall actually survive that examination and in the end find approval. Not only approval, approval, but we shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in God's divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father delights in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our, heart, our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. We are holy, set apart, not because we are good, although certainly we should strive to be good, holy, but the claim for our holiness has a much more certain foundation than our conduct. We are holy because God calls us His own. So let me summarize. The church is one because all of its diverse members are united in faith to the one Christ. The church is apostolic in that the one Christ in whom we believe is the same Christ the apostles witnessed and then proclaimed. The church is universal in that the one church includes all people in all places, the living and the dead, who are united to faith by faith in Christ. And the church is holy because the one Christ whom the apostles proclaim, in whom we believe, claims those who call on him as his own. One holy Catholic apostolic church. Two very brief points of application, neither of which particularly come from any of these points I've just made, but as I was studying preparing for this sermon, I just came, with the re came to a renewed sense of confidence in the church, not this particular church, but in God's church here across the world. God's church is not going anywhere. There will be times of pruning, and I believe the church in North America is likely going through a time of pruning, and pruning is okay. 
But you can have confidence that whenever Christ, wherever Christ is calling people to himself, and he is, there the church will be. And so the church will continue. It's just not going to go anywhere. Confidence in the church. Or that God's plan includes his church. Secondly, responsibility. If you trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you have a responsibility to others who have made that same commitment. And every time you decide, I'm going to go to church this morning, even if the lights aren't on, the heat's not working, I'm going to sing the songs even if I don't like the songs, I'm going to stand and affirm my faith even when I'm not feeling it, You, in some small way, encourage the faith of those around you, and you pass on the faith to others. So let's please stand and affirm what we believe about the church. We will say the one line from the creed that we have considered this morning, and then the choir will lead us as we sing the entire creed. Together, we believe in one holy Catholic and Catholic.